Earth podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we're back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more lights, and more love. Well, we're doing a lecture episode today with the one and only Ram Das. He's someone that has yet to make a full appearance on Midnight on Earth. And truly, he is a legend and uh, is in another dimension watching over us, I imagine, or just watching the show or listening to the show, <laughs> however he's feeling the show, wherever they are, wherever he is in those places. We're going to be listening to a lecture from Ram Das, and as usual with my lecture episodes, the Midnight on Earth lecture episodes, we have a guest, a co-host, a guest co-host from Vital Force Herbs, Bryn Anderson. Hello, Bryn. Hey, how's it going? You are here to listen to a lecture from Ram Dass from 1987. I am. How do you feel about that? Great. Feeling good. Yep. He's somebody that, like I said, you know, when I do these lecture episodes, like I've said in the past, usually it's people that I wish could have been on the show. Right. That would have been wonderful yeah. if he could have been on the show. Yeah. But here he is. Here he is. And interestingly enough, you know, Ram Dass, uh, just before his passing was on his own podcast uh, called Here and Now kind of a play on his classic book be here now which actually wasn't originally titled that i didn't know that for a really long time anyways he had his own podcast and i loved listening to it mm-hmm, me too so really we would have had a podcast crossover but now i pillage the graveyard as i often do in these episodes i'm just joking when i say that you know but he's in the other dimension so he's here via this lecture from 1987 and we're going to listen to that lecture i'm going to tell you what it's all about but first i need you to do something for me go to blue cobra cbd.com that's blue cobra cbd.com and there you will find blue cobra cbd oil the highest quality CBD oil on the market. For in my from my perspective as a person that knows about these things. And why is that? Why? It is because the CBD that goes into the CBD oil is self-extracted in small batches, I might add. Don't always say that. Self-extracted with the hit extraction method. This was developed by Howard Hitt, a.k.a. Big H, and it's a proprietary method. No other company has it, just Howard and his company. And the extraction process involves no chemicals, no solvents, which you don't want. No gases were used to extract the CBD from the hemp. None of those things. It's 100% organic, and it's extracted from 100% organic, Oregon-grown hemp. It's incredible hemp. The best hemp. 
probably in the world. I haven't seen all the hemp in the world, but it's probably up there. Let's have a competition. Just kidding. There's a Midnight on Earth Blue Cobra discount code, which is exciting. And if you plug that into the discount code box at checkout, you get free shipping on any order in the Continental 48 United States, not internationally, Alaska, Hawaii, all those other places that are like territories, Puerto Rico. You don't get free shipping, but... Everybody else does. The code is M-I-D-C-B-D. That's M-I-D-C-B-D. Plug that in. You get free shipping in the Continental 48. And there's, of course, a money-back guarantee. If you do have to pay shipping, if you don't have to pay shipping, and you have to pay for the product, and you don't like it for some reason, keep the product. You get all your money back including shipping if you have to pay it. I put it in my morning shake every day and it's one of the things that helps to keep me happy and joyous. And I stay with that cannabis spirit. And then honestly, people, when I smoke cannabis, as you legally can in Oregon here in America, I have the entourage effect where the THC and the other flower-based smokable cannabis interacts with the CBD that you already have in your system. And then they play off each other and enhance each other in a great way. Kind of like me and Brian. When she's here, I feel like I have the entourage effect. So are you the CBD or the THC? Uh, CBG, which is a yes. whole other thing, the stem cell. Well, we can go into cannabis science another time, but please go check out Blue Cobra CBD. And if you have any problems ordering, you can send Howard an email at bluecobracbd at gmail.com, the at symbol. And you can send him an email or just go to the website and get his phone number and call him directly. Talk to him. Tell him a story. If you've had experiences that are good with the Blue Cobra CBD oil that you may have received, Call him and tell him. He'd love to hear from you. And if you have questions about your country's laws pertaining to CBD, again, call him or send him an email and he'll talk to you directly. So please, everyone, go to bluecobracbd.com. That is bluecobracbd.com. And when you're done with that, follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That is the address. You can follow me there. You get funny posts, all the interesting things that I might be feeling that day. You get to know when the episodes drop. You just get information and it shows up in your feed. And then other people that are like you, that think like you, that feel like you, see that in your feed and it gets suggested to them. The algorithm. All hail the algorithm. Mm. <laughs> I don't know about all hail the algorithm. I'm just kidding. All joking about the algorithm. <laughs> Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Audible, Podchaser. Man, there's so many now. Woman, alien, man, woman, alien, uh, light being. There's so many now. Just wherever you go to get your podcast, click the button that connects us and tell someone, like, 
put a post about it on your works intranet message system. What you know, tell someone in your circle about this uh, show because you know they like these type of topics and they're going to gain something from it. At the very least, they're going to be entertained. So hopefully. You think I'm entertaining and funny. You probably wouldn't be here if that was the case. If you don't think I'm that way, please send send me an email. Let me know. I love abuse. I'm just kidding. Again, comedy. We love comedy. That's what we love here. Midnightonearth.com. All right. All right. Before we have Ram Dass as a virtual guest from another dimension, We have to read his bio, just like any other guest living or graduated. We read their bio, and then we talk to them. It's like standard protocol on Midnight on Earth. So here we go. Ram Dass, born Richard Alpert, 1931, passed away in 2019, also known as Baba Ram Dass, was an American spiritual teacher Guru of modern yoga. Would he give himself that title? Who wrote this? Psychologist and author. His best-selling 1971 book, Be Here Now, which has been described by multiple reviewers as seminal, has sold 2 million copies and helped popularize Eastern spirituality and yoga with the baby boomer generation in the West. He authored or co-authored 12 more books on spirituality over the next four decades, including Grist for the Mill, How Can I Help? We were just talking about that last episode. Polishing the Mirror and many others. Ram Dass was personally and professionally associated with Timothy Leary at Harvard University In the early 1960s, then known as Richard Alpert, he conducted research with Leary on the therapeutic effects of psychedelic drugs. In addition, Alpert assisted Harvard Divinity School graduate student Walter Penke in his 1962 Good Friday experiment with theology students, the first controlled double-blind study of drugs and the mystical experience. While not illegal at the time, their research was controversial and led to Leary's and Alpert's dismissal from Harvard in 1963. In 1967, Alpert traveled to India and became a disciple of Hindu guru named Karoli Baba. Love that guy. Who gave him the name Ramdas, meaning servant of Ram. In the coming years, he founded the charitable organizations Siva Foundation and Hanuman Foundation. He traveled extensively giving talks and retreats and holding fundraisers for charitable causes in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. In 1997, he had a stroke which left him with paralysis and expressive aphasia. He eventually grew to interpret this event as an act of grace, learning to speak again and continuing to teach and author books. After becoming seriously ill 
during a trip to India in 2004. He gave up traveling and moved to Maui, Hawaii, where he hosted annual retreats with other spiritual teachers until his death. Oh, man. And I remember when he passed. I would like to add to that pre-written biography that I found on the internet. I got to see Ram Dass in 2002. So now I feel really lucky because he stopped doing appearances in 2004. I saw him give a brief talk at the Oregon Country Fair during the day. It was an incredible talk. And I just felt his holy energy. And it set me on a path that actually changed my life for the better in a lot of ways. That moment, being in Ram Dass's energy field was a very powerful, powerful place to be. And of course, you know, please find out more about Neem Karoli Baba, his guru. So cool. There's other books uh, that kind of focus on him. One of them's out of print, Miracle of Love. But uh, if you could find it, I highly recommend that book. And really, Ram Dass was the other side of the coin in a way of the Tim Leary experience, which dove into the dimension of government and television and society, which probably caused a lot of friction in Timothy Leary's life, where Ram Dass took the total spiritual esoteric path, never really engaged those systems directly in a aggressive or combative way. It was always about unification of humanity, finding the deeper love, being in the moment. So he never had any problems. He never went to jail. He never had any problems. He was completely uh, supported all the way up until his death. And he's still, I mean, death, I would like to say graduation all the way up until his graduation. And now he's in a different place. This talk that we're going to listen to is from 1987 before the stroke. So I saw him in 2002 after the stroke. He talked really slow. It seemed like he was going into really deep thought and he probably was, but the stroke symptoms and the effects of the stroke on his physical body were apparent in 2002. In 1987, the year that we're listening to this, he's flowing like a river. So let's be uh, grateful that we get to hear that version of Ramdas. That version of Ramdas is going to be on the show. We're, we're taking him out of the time stream here. And this talk is called Beyond Success, where he just kind of addresses some of the spiritual things related to success from his perspective. And just because he has these ideas and these expressions of his ideas doesn't mean they're hundred percent accurate for you. You might come to your own conclusions that might add to his conclusions. And this talk is really an exploration of the basic questions for anyone attempting to do business in a conscious way. Is it possible to do business, make a profit, act in truth and integrity and be of genuine service all at once? I think so. I already know so. That's why I study Napoleon Hill and Earl Nightingale and Bob Proctor and so many others. In his presentation, Ram Dass depthfully sheds light and answers questions on such topics as role entrapment, the inner game of business, 
personal power, obsessions with success, alienation, deepening the bottom line, collaboration and competition, going beyond the ego, the downsides of being successful, stress, change, and fear. A useful and heartful tool to anyone doing business in the world. And I read that from the description of this talk. This took place in Los Angeles, California, USA, January 30th, 1987. Interesting, he went to LA and had that talk at that time in the 80s. Must have been an intense energy (laughs) back then. What do you think, Brent? It's going to be an interesting talk. What do you think about all that? Uh, Yeah, I'm curious to hear what he has to say about it all. Well, the cool thing is, it's very clear. Like the recording is really good. It's clear. I haven't listened to the full thing yet. So this is going to be new for us too. Like as it usually is every once in a while, it's one I've heard before and I feel like the audience would benefit from. But just to say, as usual in these lecture episodes, if you're a listener of this podcast, you know that Bryn and I take notes, questions, thoughts, We write them down as we go. And then at the end of the lecture, we come back and we talk about what we just heard. We talk to each other and in a a way we're talking to you and Ram Dass is there in spirit. And we're just going to be talking about it at the end. So stay tuned for that at the, after the recording. Bryn. Yes. How do you feel? Are you juiced up? Do you have your coffee? Are you ready to dial into this beautiful lecture called Beyond Success? Again, if I didn't say that already, I think I did. Yes, you did. And yes, I am. All right. (laughs) Feeling successful. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Well, you know, think about Earl Nightingale. Uh, Success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. I wonder if he's going to talk about that. I feel like we already kind of know that success isn't about money. It's about service to the divine and the human race and finding your talent and then maximizing your talent's potential in the third dimension. I think that that's part of success. (laughs) I feel like Ram Dass could speak to that very well. Yeah, let's see what he says. I'm so interested. Okay, here we go. Sorry. Uh, Ram Dass, 1987. January 30th, Los Angeles, California, beyond success. Good morning. Morning. Yesterday, a couple came to see me at the hotel. They had written to me in Boston, and I arranged for them to come yesterday. He is 42. She is 33. He's a graduate of a business school. He started a business which is now grossing 80 million. Yeah. He did that in seven years. Yeah, my dude. They have been living for the past three and a half years on what Carl refers to as the fast track. That is, they have been realizing all of the benefits of affluence. You want a house? Let's have a house. You want a bigger house? A bigger house. Should we travel here? Let's go here. New car? Yes. Of course. Of course. Yes. Yeah. They have a 20-month-old child. Six months ago, the wife was diagnosed as having cancer of the liver. Oh. It is now spread to the bones. Damn it. She's been in treatment in Texas, and they've now decided to discontinue all treatment. She is a beautiful woman, now quite thin. So six months ago, 
something happened in their lives so profound and so dramatic that it stopped short the game of their life. And it led them to ask some very profound and soul-searching questions, especially for him, the questions of what am I doing with my time and my life? What is my bottom line? And for her, what is death about? And how do I deal with the issues of healing and healing into life or healing into death and, and so on? Now, um, he said to me that the past six months have been months of the most profound growth in his life. They are collaboratively dealing with her illness. I mean, little things happen. For example, he had an aversion to hospitals. He would get nauseous when he, and he wouldn't go to a hospital. He just refused to go. He didn't want to deal with sickness or death from all the time he was growing up. Now he found himself spending days in intensive care with his wife. And he began to work through that aversion and learn how he could be in that and be with people and grow through that. But he saw that along the way in business, a number of personality qualities had become dominant in his being that were slightly toxic to his relationship with his family and to his ability to be with his wife fully through this. And he had some pretty agonizing self-examination to go through at that point. And as I say, he feels that the past six months he's grown immensely. Now, in the business community, there is some process that goes on, which we're going to explore a little bit, that often it is only some traumatic event, such as illness, such as a child's breakdown or a child's acting out, such as the moments of retirement, such as bankruptcy, such as some intense crisis like that, that forces an awakening, that forces a person to confront how they lockstepped into a game. And the interesting question is, are there subtler motivators for that self-examination? We're talking about stages of the evolution of consciousness of individuals. And we're asking now whether built into the business process, the process of being entrepreneurial or being in management or being involved in the business mode, whether there are clues along the way that one tends to ignore because they are subtle and because one feels somehow that those clues are showing a weakness in yourself rather than clues that reflect something that if you listen to might be the cue for you to consider that there's another way of you looking at the meaning of your life and why you're doing what you're doing. I remember a stage in my father's life where my father, who had been, um, he had been a, a successful lawyer, he had helped start a university, Brandeis, he had been president of a railroad. He had, from the culture's point of view, been a success. But as he retired and turned to his hobbies, then there came a period where at night he would wake up remembering all his failures, remembering the investments he didn't make, remembering the bad investments he made. 
and the feelings of failure. And I thought, is that what the product of all of his efforts are? That's what he's left with, is this feeling of failure. He's gone beyond that now, and he's just in total peace now, but he's also very quiet. And then I see also people in business. I saw this more years ago than I see it now. There's a little more consciousness in the business community than there used to be. I don't really know a lot about business. I think you all realize that probably at the outset. I mean, everything I invest in loses, so I think you should know that at the outset. So, uh, uh, And I just know really from, like in the old days when my father was chairman of the Brandeis and uh, head of the Joint Distribution Committee in Jewish Charities, I used to play gin rummy with his rich friends. And we'd play on somebody's yacht in Miami. And I'd meet a man who was in his 70s, whose company was on the New York Exchange, and he had just moved all his mills from the New England area to the Tennessee area. And he was in his 70s, and he was complaining and such headaches. And he had many millions of dollars. And I said to him, why, why did you do it? Why do you keep doing it? And he looked up at me with what looked, from my point of view, like almost a, a sadness. And he said, what else am I going to do? And I felt at that point the pain of getting locked into a game, a model of oneself that you couldn't transcend because the reinforcers were too strong for staying in the thing. So um, what I want to look at is some of the subtle, uh, not so subtle, things that are clues in business life that might resonate for you. And if they don't, fine, you are probably well beyond them or you may be still not realizing who knows will allow for both possibilities ideally and now i'm talking from really outside the business community but ideally i see business as uh business people as people who find viable means to realize visions they see a possibility and then they find a viable means to realize that possibility. And in the doing of that, if they do that well and effectively, profits follow. And in the process, they deepen and enrich the infrastructure of the society. Now, this is the idealistic statement of business. In other words, the thing that they contribute through their business just enriches the structure of the society and its stability and its growth and its caring and its compassion and its richness and its opportunity and so on. One of the interesting shifts in consciousness is that what was a serendipitous effect, or at least just a small component effect, which was profit, starts to loom as the dominant criterion and people are working instead of being part of finding a manifestation of a vision, they are working then to make a profit as their goal rather than as a side effect of their goal. And that becomes such a built-in cultural statement that people start to justify their actions in terms of profit, even though it is at the expense sometimes of the enrichment of the infrastructure of the society or the realization of the dream, of the vision. And then they have to build, an individual has to build an entire philosophical justification in their mind 
to be able to handle the fact that their goal has shifted from something which has a social significance to something that has just a personal significance. And they see that what they read in the textbook about idealism of business and when they get out on the street, they find that the street values are very different and in order to buy into those street values, they have to armor themselves in a certain way to do it. And it's that armoring which we're talking about a little bit today. Now, um, because of this particular group that I'm speaking with, this is not um, the disenfranchised or the homeless, I assume. <laughs> um, unless I got my schedule dates mixed up. <laughs> I think that one of these subtle issues we are reflecting about today is the issue of the effects of success. That is, if you invest in a myth in a culture, and that myth says, those who do such and such get such and such, and then they are happy. And you do such and such, and you get such and such, then you are happy. Or are you? Right there is where the edge is, right at that point. Some people who have been very successful in this culture, who have won in a big way, and in their early wins, they were part of the moving towards success, and they were very, very excited, and each win was another marker along the way. Then, as they got a greater margin of success, it was harder to see it as a path because they saw that the difference, for example, between having 20 million and 80 million wasn't going to really change the style of their life that much. It was going to put them in a different league with other players, but it wasn't going to change the style of their life that much. And they began to feel that the excitement or the feelings of the gratification that success brought with each act started to diminish as the successes got greater and greater, which is a very strange experience. You would think they would get higher and higher, but they don't seem to. The early successes, when you just begin to make it, the person that just starts as a self-made person and then makes the first uh, good deal there's a certain gratification, but the 80th deal is a very different kind of psychological experience than the first deal. You do a thing, it gives you a certain feeling of happiness or fulfillment or pleasure, and that is just like a rat in a maze that the animal learns to turn right and get a pellet. You get that certain feeling, everybody looks at you and smiles, you're doing well, you're doing wonderfully, come be with us, let's have lunch together, and then at that moment, you are motivated to try the next one and the next one. And that is the root of what often turns out to be an addiction or an obsession. I was with a man a few weeks ago in New York City. He started working in Coney Island with one of the rides in Coney Island, selling the ride. He's in real estate in New York City and around the world. His net worth is, I don't know, probably 75 to 100 million. His children are all in therapy, very neurotic. His wife is heavy on Valium. He has a private yacht, airplane, many homes. He has an office in which he has three rooms so he can have three deals going at once. It's showbiz. He's just rushing from deal to deal. The more chaos, the more excitement, the more excitement, the more gratification. His family has gone, everything else in life has gone but the deal. And the bigger the risk for the deal, it's, it's a paper game, as you all understand this better than I do, 
the bigger the risk for the deal, the more the adrenaline pumps, the more the sweat, the more the excitement, the more he can embroil everybody in the drama, the more rush he's got in. And he's got to keep doing it. He can't stop. He can't stop for an evening off. He can't stop for a vacation. They mean nothing to him. He's just got to keep going. That is as much an addiction as a heroin addiction. It's an addiction to that he only feels alive at the moment when he is playing with that edge of risk. It's like a gambler at Las Vegas. It's the, it's risk taking behavior that is reinforcing him for lead, playing at that leading edge. And it's very exciting and very heady stuff. And he can't stop and he keeps parlaying it more and more and working on, on further margins. And at any moment, I've watched people like that do one wrong one and then they go under. And loss is even a part of the game as far as they're concerned and they just start again. It's part of the excitement and the uh, adrenaline hit. Now, um, that one is based on the model that more is better. And if this is good, more is better. This deal, more is better, more is better, and more is better. That's part of the myth, that more is always better. But I ask you, have you seen through that one already? That when is it enough? When is there a feeling of peace within more is better? Years ago, I was hanging out with a fellow named Billy Hitchcock. Now, this may be in that tape that I wrote once before. Billy is one of the Mellon family. Uncle Paul Mellon has 700 million and his mother has 700 million and so on. So Billy had maybe 20 million. And so Billy bought a little plane, a Piper Cherokee or something. And I was teaching him how to fly. And we were having a wonderful time. And we landed at LaGuardia Airport and um, we pulled over to the... Um, private parking area. And we were very happy and really enjoying ourselves. And he had made a good landing and all was well, nice, pretty day. And as we pulled in, we pulled by this big jet, private jet. Billy looked at it and his face fell. And suddenly he was deeply sad. And I said, Billy, what are you so sad about? He said, oh, that's Uncle Paul's plane. And I mean, he couldn't have one. He couldn't have one. And I could feel that his life was related to Uncle Paul's money, not to his money. I mean, 20 million was nothing to him. He was living in a world of people with 700 million and making himself miserable as a result of it. So uh, that one of more is better. I saw it as an extreme example at that moment because I had a Cessna 172. I would have loved to have his plane. <laughs> see, it's all relative, you see. <laughs> now, uh, I think another thing that you see about success is that it changes the nature of the risk you can take because as your investment gets greater and as you have a beautiful physical plant and you have all of this, you have to shift ground. And a lot of people who have entrepreneurial zeal, you all know that issue about why entrepreneurs don't make it as maintainers of big businesses because they can't handle the changing risk structure that they have to do in order to preserve the structures that they have created. And uh, they are willing to play on the edge and they can't pull back enough to maintain existing institutions without changing their self-image. And most people can't do that. So entrepreneurs often leave a company after they start it and management comes in, people who are comfortable with that kind of risk-taking level. But there is a feeling for people who start and build success of a narrowing field as they get more successful because of the fact that they can take 
less risk and that they have more riding in the sense of more responsibility, more people involved, and they start to feel hemmed in and they don't feel the kind of freedom and the space that they felt before. Another part of it is what's called role entrapment. That is a sense that the role you've gotten into of being a certain kind of a person starts to entrap you. My father told me a story some years ago about a tailor in a Middle Eastern European country. There was a Jewish man who wanted to show that he had done well, so he went to the best tailor in town, whose name was Zumbach, and he said, Zumbach, I want your best suit. So Zumbach made a suit, and the man came in to try on the suit, and he put it on, and it was beautiful material, no doubt about it. But when he put it on, this sleeve was about two inches longer than this sleeve. <clears throat> and he said, Zumbach, he said, I, I don't mean to complain, but he said, this sleeve is two inches longer than this sleeve. Zumbach took a front. Zumbach says, there's nothing wrong with a suit, it's the way you're standing. Stand like this. And he pushes his shoulder down, and the suit then fits perfectly, you see. <laughs> and the man looks in the mirror, and he sees there's this big bunched-up material back here, and he says, Zumbach, would you mind taking that material? My wife hates it when there's that extra bunch of material there. Zumbach says, there's nothing wrong with a suit. It's the way you're standing, and he pushes his head down like this. <laughs> so finally, the suit is fitting perfectly, and the man leaves with his new suit on. He's afraid to breathe for fear it won't fit, and he's been completely cowed by Zumbach, and he gets on the bus, and he's standing on the bus, and somebody comes up and says, What a beautiful suit. I bet Zumbach de Taylor made that suit. And the fellow said, How did you know? He said, Because only somebody as skilled as Zumbach could fit somebody as crippled as you. <laughs> now, uh, the feeling often of role entrapment is that you have gotten into a suit and everybody's saying, what a beautiful suit, what a beautiful suit, except your spine is out of whack and you're feeling inside not the same, not as good. In my rather checkered career, which I guess some of you know, some of the checkeredness of it, there was a point, I remember, when I had become a professor at Harvard and I was a winner in the culture. I mean, I wasn't making any money, but I was a winner. My, my father, he said to me, he wanted me to be a doctor. And when I became a professor, he says, well, that's fine, but what are you going to do for a living? <laughs> so but at any rate, there I was a professor. And for most people, except my father, I had won. And um, people treated me with great respect because I was part of a symbolic institution of great. And everything I said, people listened to. And they thought I was wise. And every day I'd go to work and everybody would reward me all day. And I was teaching human personality and motivation and Freud and all the latest stuff. So that if anybody should be happy, it should be me, technically. I mean, if we wise persons knew what we were talking about, why shouldn't I be it? But I'd go home and I'd get into the bathtub and I'd be a neurotic mess. And I decided... I would feel somehow that it wasn't good enough. I didn't feel fully satisfied inside, and I thought, it must be me. So I went into analysis and therapy, 
And what I met was a therapist who was wearing another form of Zumbach suit. And he said, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll teach you how to wear my suit so you don't have to wear your suit, which I learned. And then I became a Freudian therapist and I have this suit on. And then I, I got a new role model and a new identity. And when people walked down the street, I didn't see people. I saw psychosexual stages. I saw early anal retentives and late phallics and stuff like that. <laughs> and uh, I got caught in a new set of roles. And it took me until um, a rather wild Irishman by the name of Tim Leary uh, came along and introduced me to uh, ways of uh, changing my own consciousness that I began to understand that the feeling of malaise that I was feeling in myself, which because everybody around me kept smiling and saying, you won, I assumed was my sickness, was maybe not my sickness, but was a cue to me, a clue to me, that there was another kind of growth lying in store for me. And that maybe that feeling wasn't something to be treated as pathology, but rather something to be treated as something worth exploring. And that did guide the rest of my life. Some of the uh, side effects of success, interestingly enough, one of them is boredom. You've learned a skill that you know how to do very well, and you keep repeating it. It's just like making pizza. I mean, you can be a big deal maker, but it's still the same thing after a while. You know just the ingredients to put the game together, and it worked. And you keep playing the same one over and over again, and you've got a strategy, and it works. And you start to get bored by the finiteness of the game and the finiteness of your role. And the problem is it's working, and it's giving you all the fringe effects, but the thing itself you do every day starts to bore you. And the way people respond to boredom, it's interesting how aversive people experience boredom to be, especially people who have become successful because they are doers. We have a funny distinction between doers and beers. Beers just sit and be. Doers are always doing it. I'll mow the lawn. Here, let me help you. I'll do this. What do you say? Let's go. And their vacations are exhausting. I mean, <laughs> they come back from their vacation needing a vacation because they are so exhausted because they can't stop doing because they got rewarded for doing. And that's the style they have in life. And what happens to somebody that gets bored that's a doer is they just do harder <laughs> and they do more and they keep doing more until if you watch them, it is exhausting to watch a doer being bored <laughs> because they are so busy avoiding the boredom because the boredom is so real for them. And that kind of fast action to avoid boredom has connected with it and the anxiety about seeing the trap that you're in and not knowing how to get out of it because all your models of how to get out of it were just to do more of it. Can you hear that issue? If I do something and do more, I will get out of it. And that's the one you learned. And then it doesn't feel great, but I'll do more of it in order to feel better out of that one. But after a while, the more you do, the worse you feel because you're beginning to see the handwriting on the wall that it's not going to do it for you. These are the cues I'm talking to you about that can force growth prior to a trauma, prior to a total breakdown of the system. I think it was Jesus who said, what profiteth a man if he gain the world and lose his soul? We're talking a little bit about that, the idea of more is better and accruing stuff 
stuff, more stuff, so that your life becomes stuffier and stuffier and you've got garages full of stuff. You want to see my stuff? Come see my, I've got two houses full of stuff. I mean, it's just stuff and stuff and stuff and it keeps collecting. Because when you feel that bad feeling of boredom or finiteness, then you are absolutely a mark for the advertising industry, which says to you, if you buy this car that's going to give you this certain driving experience, you won't feel that feeling. And they know exactly, they meaning us, I mean, we are the advertising industry too, know exactly what feeling that is you're playing with in advertising. The feeling of I'm not potent enough, the feeling I'm not beautiful enough, the feeling I'm not successful enough, the feeling I'm not happy enough, I'm not free enough, I'm not stimulated enough. The whole idea of more and different is going to be better. It's the idea that something external to yourself is finally going to give you what you want. And that is a basic fallacy. Now, there's just one more that I think that will be familiar to some of you uh, of these sort of little clues, and that is your relation to time. I think that a number of you, I suspect, seem to see time as your enemy. You see yourself as caught in time, and there's never enough time. I'd love to do it, but I don't have time. Can't be with you for your birthday, I don't have time. And you feel like you are running against time so much of the time. I mean, I've been in that so often that out of my basically greed, I want more on my plate than I can digest, and then I am running like the rabbit. I can't stop, and I can't do it because I don't have time. And they say that the secret of what we're talking about today is to snatch the pearl of freedom from the dragon time and get into another relation of time so that instead of time using you, you are in another relationship to time, and that's part of what we're going to be talking about today. Now, finally, a lot of the things that force this lockstep and the trap of this single-minded model of success and, and the why you get caught in more is that there is a tremendous reinforcement in who you hang out with. I'm not talking you personally now, and I'm talking about collective, that quality of the, uh, of, um, the business community tends to, unless it makes an intentional effort, hang out with people that share your values. So you hang out with people who are in the same kind of lockstep and reinforcing for each other that this is the way it's done. Like my friend in New York who has got three deals going at once and his net worth is say 75 or 100 million, but his friend has a net worth of 1.2 billion and he's living in relation to that guy. And that guy's saying, make bigger deals, work faster, work harder. You're already 61, you're losing it. That's his guru. That's his spiritual mentor, if you will. So that who you hang around with, who you're spending time with, are not usually people who are um, free of time, for example. So everybody say, I'd love to have lunch with you. And they all even talk fast. You know, because you don't have time to talk slow, you know. And the way you eat, you eat fast because you've got to do it faster. And there's, there's just that quality of collecting, collecting, and moving faster and faster in order to cram more into time. That's, again, more is better. Okay. In order to play your role often in business, it requires you to think about other people a certain way. Now, this is very subtle. The question is, who is us and who is them? When we started out as tribes, the tribe was us. And then you found out there was another tribe, and maybe you decided that because there was only one piece of buffalo, that the other tribe was them. And you had to protect the piece of buffalo, so it was us against them. 
and you shared the buffalo among us and you competed with them. What happens when you get into a model of competition, when you're in the role of being a competitor, it often is that who you're competing against is them. And we in our company are us. That might be a next step. Then what happens in your own personal life is you are an administrator or an executive and the people in your company you have to motivate to get a certain productivity out of. So you have to see them as them, to play with them, to get the best out of them. You say nice things about us, but you're still thinking them. I mean, am I pushing too hard or can you hear any of this? So that they are them and you are now us is the executive coterie that runs it. But the executive, you're the top executive, the executive coterie, they're waiting for the misstep because they train just like you did in the same school. So at some level, your colleagues in your own company are a little bit them. See? Well, you say, at least I've got my family, you know, they're us. See? My family's us. But now your wife is very bugged because you're spending so much time at business, but she doesn't understand or your husband, and he doesn't understand how consuming this is. And because they don't understand, then they are them. Do you hear the whole process of what is called alienation in the culture? In order to realize the goal you wanted, you had to make everybody around you, the kids, they don't understand, it's a different generation, they're screwing up. You know, they were good kids, basically, but that kind of feeling at times but I can't run their life and they don't really understand so that it gets so and my parents are a different generation and they don't understand. You slowly get cut off from generations, from opposite sex at times, because after all, I'm a woman or I'm a man and how can he or she understand? So very slowly you keep getting inside and inside. And as long as you are in your thinking mind, the quality of the thinking mind, you notice, is that it thinks about things. It always takes an object. So as long as you think about other people, you are making them into objects. Now, this is going to be an interesting one for us to explore in a minute. So this problem of depersonalizing, like I can show it to you. Some of you are familiar with, uh, some of you are not, I'm sure, but some of you are familiar with what it feels like to have lust. <laughs> and you can be looking at somebody who's us until that lust awakens. And then the whole consciousness shifts and the other person becomes them or her or him or somebody to be manipulated to bring about gratification. That's why the Bible says thou shalt not lust. In other words, thou shalt not push somebody far enough away to desire them as an object because you lose the love, you lose the usness. The problem with getting into a world which your job forces you into of treating people as object is that it isolates you. And when you get isolated from a safe relationship with other human beings, you starve to death emotionally and you don't get fed. You cut off your own lifeline. And that's because of the definition of bottom line being a little too narrow. If the bottom line is my net worth in terms of money, then you can justify all this stuff. If my bottom line is not only net worth, but friends and an intimate relation to family, that's a whole different kind of bottom line. And it justifies different actions. And sometimes you can say, I could go into that deal, but it's going to cost me too much in terms of the rest of my bottom line. So what we're talking about now is considering what our bottom line is and how do we broaden that bottom line out. 
All of this that I have been talking about, which can be characterized in the most beautiful terms of I am an achiever, I'm a visionary, I'm working hard, I'm, I'm helping the society move ahead. You can justify uh, everything. Or you can put it in the negative terms of you usually do it about somebody else. Say, she's hard-driving, impatient, relentless, cynical, and judging. That's the negative way of looking at it. The other way is I'm assertive, responsible, seeking, you're, you know, working hard, etc. All of these cues that I'm talking about are the clues, that finiteness, that boredom, that realizing the limits of the game, that seeing that more isn't going to be better, that you want to not look at because you don't know what else to do. That is the clue that you are ripe for the next stage of the journey of life and that there is another stage of the journey. In the spiritual work that I do, I teach that you've got to become somebody before you can become nobody. That is, you've got to develop your somebodyness first. You've got to develop your ego structure. You've got to develop your grounding, your control and mastery of the universe. The problem is that control and mastery of the universe is not freedom and it's not happiness. It's just control and mastery of the universe. And then you have to move beyond that. So in the stages one goes through usually, it's material control first. That's mine, this is mine, this is mine. And then there's the next one of you move up into the psychological thing when you've got your base camp together. And then you say, I, I want my personal accomplishment, achievement. I want to psychologically feel good. That's another stage, and you've all passed through that one. Then the next stage is you see the finiteness of all that, that accomplishment all by yourself isn't happiness. You see the kind of ephemeral nature of this stuff. And then you start to shift your goal and you start to go for some kind of deeper truth of your being and deeper meaning to your own life. And that's the next stage that flips around. And that's where we go from now. Carl Jung said the biggest problems in the world for us are not solved, they're just outgrown. And in order to outgrow them, it requires a new level of consciousness. And that's really what I'd like to talk about from here on. Now, I'm going to give you a very naive story. And I know you'll all say, well, it's easy for him to say. So I'll say it first. Back in the early 70s, I did a series of radio shows on uh, a radio station in New York, WBAI, and one in Montreal. And excerpts from these were made into a set of records. And I read holy books, and I did chanting, and I answered questions from telephones. It came out as a six-record album, and we mail order sold it for four and a half dollars. Now, it was a different economy in those days, but that was still pretty reasonable. My father, who was at the height of his worldly powers at that moment, looked at it. He didn't listen to it, but he looked at it. And he's, I mean, uh, can you imagine what he, I must have been to him? I mean, I'll just give you a vignette that I've described of my coming back from India in 1968. His, his son, who made it to be a Harvard professor, then got thrown out, then ends up in India, and he picks me up at the Logan Airport in his Cadillac. I am standing there, barefoot, in a dress, Indian uh, outfit, with beads, a long beard and long hair, and a big musical instrument. His comment to me was, get in fast before anybody sees you. <laughs> and he used to call me Rumdum. It's better than my brother. He called me Ramdast. <laughs> at any rate, my father looked at this album. He said, it's an impressive piece of work. I said, yeah. He said, um, only four and a half dollars? I said, yeah. 
Seems pretty cheap to me. I said, yeah. He said, you know, it looks like you could get $10 for this. I said, yeah. He said, would fewer people buy it if you charge $10? I said, no. He said, you mean the same people would buy it for $10 as they're buying it for $4.50? I said, well, it cost us $4 to make and, there's, and ship, and there's a 50 cent margin for we put towards reprinting or giving, doing something with. He says, I don't understand you. He said, are you against capitalism? I said, no. I said, I'm standing on it. Why would I be against it? And I tried to figure out how to explain to him what my predicament was. He was a lawyer at one point. I said, a few years back, you remember you tried a case for Henry? He says, yeah. I said, was it a tough case? He says, I knew it was, actually. This is just a little routine. I said, damn right it was. I said, you work hard on the case? I spent a lot of time in the law library. That was a very tough case, and I brought it up to the Supreme Court in Massachusetts. I said, well, you know, you've been known for a pretty good fee structure, and you did all that work for Uncle Henry. I bet you charged him a nominal egg. And he looked at me like I was out of my mind. He says, what are you, out of your mind? He says, that was Uncle Henry. Of course I didn't charge him a big fee. I said, you see my problem. I said, if you can find somebody that isn't Uncle Henry, I'll rip them off. My predicament is very simple that as a result of what happened in my own consciousness, I extricated myself, meaning my awareness, from such an exclusive identity with my own separateness that I directly experienced that other people were us. In other words, I broke out of my own alienation, alienated state. And I experienced that when I looked around, I saw that people were my sisters and my brothers. And if you'll give me license to just play at the edge of mysticism, I actually experienced the feeling that there was really only one consciousness in all of it, which is something now that physicists understand finally, coming at it from another point of view. This was a direct experience. So that if you look at planes of consciousness now for a human individual, there is one level at which you are a separate entity and everything else in the world is it or them or other, in which you are very little and it's very big and it's very frightening and your biggest fear is your own death because you identify with the separateness and that thing can die. So a lot of your action is to ward off the threats to the loss of that separateness. Then there are planes of awareness where your awareness breaks out of that identification and you experience the feeling that you are part of a community in which you look and you see other people. Like the, the image that I use again and again in almost every lecture is that when you look at another person, what do you see? When you look at me on the physical plane, what you see is a 55-year-old balding gentlemen, attractive gentlemen. Okay. Okay, that's what you see on the physical plane. Then you shift the ground a little bit, shift the lens a little bit, and you see personality. And what you look when you see is you see a warm, personable, seeker after truth, uh, teacher, etc., etc. You see my social psychological identity. Now there are many, many planes, but let's flip to another one where you look and you look into my eyes 
What you see is another awareness just like you, but it's packaged differently. It's what the Christians call the soul, and the eyes are the windows to the soul. It's where you look behind the matrix of individual differences that is body and personality to see another awareness, another entity just like you looking back. No different than you. It has a different agenda because it's packaged differently. Now, when I see that and I experience that the minute I meet you in that place behind our individual differences and we recognize one another, there is an incredible rush or an incredible release of energy or an incredible feeling of I have met us. I have met us. I have come into a space of sharing which opens me up, which feeds me. Instead of my relationships alienating and separating me, this relationship makes contact and I get some energy from it and my heart opens a little bit. Then I see this tastes so good and it feels so wonderful and I am so at home in it. Then I get terribly greedy to be in that and every time I come back into my separateness, to my alienation, I start to feel pain and separateness and loss. And you begin to feel your awareness moving through these planes. And you begin to observe what it is that, quote, brings you down. What catches you back up in your own separateness? What catches you back up in your alienation? See, there are two stages of this. One is where you start to recognize that you are much more than you thought you were, that you were shortchanging yourself tremendously because your intellectual mind was treating you as an object because it thinks about objects. And you were so invested in your thinking mind that you couldn't escape this objective dualism, this kind of reality. And as you bring your awareness back out of it or acknowledge those parts of you where you have been out of it. See, the, the situation is that everybody gets out of their thinking mind all the time. They do it in sex, they do it in skiing, they do it in uh, the, the headiness of a deal where they so are Im immersed in the moment that they lose their separate sense of identity and they transcend it and they feel alive and juiced and fulfilled by the moment. And that's why often people do things like surfing or skiing or motorcycling or something that brings them very close to the edge because it engrosses them so fully in the moment that they transcend the models in their head that keep them separate and they experience a connection to the universe and they feel fed by it. They feel they're part of everything. You could think of it as addicting and most people that are in business know how to get there through that edge of risk-taking and gambling. But they have ruled out other ways of getting there. At first, your job is to get there, to experience that connection, and then you come back into your separateness, you feel cut off again, and then later, once you know that you can get there, but you're gonna get cast out again, like the going to the wedding feast and not wearing the wedding garment in the Bible, then after a while, what you become interested in is what brings you down and how to not get caught, how to be as Christ says, in the world, but not of the world. How to play your game of life, but not get lost in it. It's like two people walk on a tennis court, or a, they have a golf match, and they are competing for who's going to buy on the 19th hole. And they are competing, and it's a fierce competition. And in that competition, the other person, you're trying to beat the other person, which could be part of the business community, too. But you remember also that you both collaborated to walk on the golf course together. So that simultaneously, what called good sportsmanship is that you are collaborating and competing simultaneously. 
In other words, you are playing at two levels with another human being, and you're not forgetting that, and that's what's called a good sport. A bad sport is somebody that forgets one of those levels. Because if you're just collaborating and not competing, you give the game away. And what kind of a game is that? And if you're just competing and not collaborating, you get vicious. And you're called a poor sport when you lose. And you sneer when you win. You're beginning to hear that the secret of the shift I'm talking about has to do with the nature of who you think you are. And if you push that back one step, you're back to the nature of the way your mind works and the way you are identified with your mind, how you are in relation to your thinking mind. There's a story of a big samurai, a protector of the faith, who hires out. And he comes to a very diminutive little monk. And he says, monk, teach me about heaven and hell. Very arrogant. And the monk looks up at him and says, teach you about heaven and hell? I couldn't teach you anything. You're so stupid. You're dirty. You smell. Your blade looks rusty. Who'd hire you as a samurai? You're probably a second-rate samurai. I wouldn't teach you anything. I don't think you're worth anything. The samurai got so furious that the veins were sticking out on his neck. I mean, nobody talks to a samurai that way. And this little monk, and the samurai pulls out his sword to cut off the head of the monk, and just as he's about to do it, the monk looks up at the samurai and says, that's hell. And the samurai realizes that the monk has just practically given his life to give this teaching. And he is so humbled by the courage of the monk and by the caring of the monk that got him into that experiential learning moment that he sheathes his sword and he bows. And the monk says, and that's heaven. Now you see what the monk did. He just played with the mind of the samurai. And he made the samurai's life into a hell or a heaven with just a flick of the mind. Same situation, same monk, same samurai. Now, I want to read you a story from a very good book that just came out called How Can I Help by Me? <laughs> and a fellow named Paul Gorman. And this is a, a story told to me by a friend of mine uh, who's an Aikido master. The train clanked and rattled through the suburbs of Tokyo on a drowsy spring afternoon. Our car was comparatively empty. A few housewives with their kids in tow, some old folks going shopping, I gazed absently at the drab houses and dusty hedgerows. At one station, the doors opened, and suddenly the afternoon quiet was shattered by a man bellowing violent, incomprehensible curses. The man staggered into our car. He wore laborer's clothing, and he was big, drunk, and dirty. Screaming, he swung at a woman holding a baby. The blow sent her spinning into the laps of an elderly couple. It was a miracle that the baby was unharmed. Terrified, the couple jumped up and scrambled towards the other end of the car. The labor aimed a kick at the retreating back of the old woman, but missed as she scuttled to safety. This so enraged the drunk that he grabbed the metal pole in the center of the car and tried to wrench it out of its stanchion. I could see that one of his hands was cut and bleeding. The train lurched ahead, the passengers frozen with fear. I stood up. I was young then, some 20 years ago, 
and in pretty good shape. I had been putting in a solid eight hours of Aikido training nearly every day for the past three years. I liked to throw and grapple. I thought I was tough. The trouble was my martial skill was untested in actual combat. As students of Aikido, we were not allowed to fight. Aikido, my teacher had said again and again, is the art of reconciliation. Whoever has the mind to fight has broken his connection with the universe. If you try to dominate people, you're already defeated. We study how to resolve conflict, not how to start it. I listened to his words. I tried hard. I even went so far as to cross the street to avoid the, the chimpira, the pinball punks who lounged around the train stations. My forbearance exalted me. I felt both tough and holy. In my heart, however, I wanted an absolutely legitimate opportunity whereby I might save the innocent by destroying the guilty. This is it, I said to myself as I got to my feet. People are in danger. If I don't do something fast, somebody will probably get hurt. Seeing me stand up, the drunk recognized the chance to focus his rage. Aha, he roared, a foreigner. You need a lesson in Japanese manners. I held on lightly to the commuter strap overhead and gave him a slow look of disgust and dismissal. I planned to take this turkey apart, but he had to make the first move. I wanted him mad, so I pursed my lips and blew him an insolent kiss. All right, he hollered. You're going to get a lesson. He gathered himself for a rush at me. A fraction of a second before he could move, someone shouted, Hey! It was ear-splitting. I remember the strangely joyous, lilting quality of it as though you and a friend had been searching diligently for something, and he had suddenly stumbled upon it. Hey! I wheeled to my left, the drunk spun to his right. We both stared down at a little old Japanese man. He must have been well into his 70s. This tiny gentleman sitting there immaculate in his kimono. He took no notice of me, but he beamed delightedly at the laborer as though he had a most important, most welcome secret to share. Come here, the old man said in an easy vernacular, beckoning to the drunk. Come here and talk with me. He waved his hand lightly. The big man followed as if on a string. He planted his feet belligerently in front of the old gentleman and roared above the clacking wheels. Why the hell should I talk to you? The drunk now had his back to me. If his elbow moved so much as a millimeter, I'd drop him in his socks. The old man continued to beam at the laborer. What you been drinking? He asked, his eyes sparkling with interest. I've been drinking sake, the laborer bellowed back, and it's none of your business. Flecks of spittle spattered the old man. Oh, that's wonderful, the old man said. Absolutely wonderful. You see, I love sake, too. Every night, me and my wife, she's 76, you know, we warm up a little bottle of sake, and we take it out into the garden, and we sit on an old wooden bench. We watch the sun go down, and we look to see how our persimmon tree is doing. You know, my great-grandfather planted that persimmon tree. We worry about it after those ice storms we had last winter. Our tree has done better than we expected, especially when you consider the poor quality of the soil. It's gratifying to watch it. We take our sake out even in the rain. He looked up at the labor, his eyes twinkling. As he struggled to follow the old man's conversation, the drunk's face began to soften. His fist slowly unclenched. Yeah, he said. 
I love persimmons, too. His voice trailed off. Yes, said the old man, smiling, and I'm sure you have a wonderful wife. No, replied the laborer. My wife died. Very gently, swaying with the motion of the train, the big man began to sob. I don't got no wife. I don't got no job. I don't got no home. I'm so ashamed of myself. Tears rolled down his cheeks. A spasm of despair rippled through his body. Now it was my turn, standing there in my well-scrubbed youthful innocence, my make-this-world-safe-for-democracy righteousness. I suddenly felt dirtier than he was. Then the train arrived at my stop. As the doors opened, I heard the old man cluck sympathetically. My, my, he said, that is a difficult predicament. Sit down here and tell me about it. I turned my head for one last look. The laborer was sprawled on the seat, his head in the old man's lap. The old man was softly stroking the filthy, matted hair. As the train pulled away, I sat down on a bench. What I had wanted to do with muscle had been accomplished with love. What we see in the old man is the quality of standing back in his awareness out of the game of life far enough so that instead of being reactive to the situation that he finds himself in, in a mechanical way, like the young Aikido fellow was, he could open himself to the totality of the situation in a quiet way, and out of that would come a response which would truly bring about reconciliation and harmony and bring things back in. In other words, from an effectiveness of playing the game of life, there is a stance where your mind is that increases your effectiveness in the game and it also liberates you from being entrapped by the game. Like say you're playing Monopoly and the Monopoly things on the Monopoly board, some of you may or may not know, are a top hat, an iron, a thimble, and you be the thimble and I'll be the top hat. Now the question is, are you a thimble or a top hat, or are you somebody playing with a thimble and a top hat? Well, you don't get lost in that too much. Well, I'd ask you the same about business. Are you an executive? Are you a CEO? Are you a president? Or are you a being who is being a president, CEO, whatever that is? In other words, where is your awareness in relationship to your role? If you identify with your role exclusively, you are trapped and you are experiencing some sense of finiteness, boredom, trapped, and all the rest of it. If you stand outside in your awareness, not pushing it away, you are what Christ says, being in the world but not of the world, and you learn how to fulfill the roles without getting trapped in them by working to extricate your consciousness away, then what you become is a more effective game player because your risk isn't as great. So if you lose your job, ah, so. Instead of, oh my God, I lost my job. There's job and there's not job, and here I am. You're still here. In fact, you get to the point where you begin to see when you are able to stand back that even losses are vacuums into which growth can come. And that when you're winning, there is less opportunity for growth, actually, than when you start to lose or feel a finiteness or feel it fall apart a little bit. Yen Hui, a disciple of a famous Taoist sage by the name of Cheng Tzu, 
Yen Hui was also a prominent figure at the imperial court and was to become an advisor to the emperor. This emperor happened to have a great predilection for chopping off heads of his advisors if they made a mistake. Yen Hui was afraid of this job and came to his teacher for his advice. He said to his teacher, I don't think I'm sufficiently enlightened to be safe in this exalted position. Cheng Su said to him, In that case, you must retire and practice mind fasting. Yen Hui asked, What is mind fasting? Chuang Tzu gave him the following instruction. Now this may be a little far out. When you want to hear with your ears, don't listen with your ears. When you want to see with your eyes, don't look with your eyes. When you want to understand with your mind, don't think with your mind. Listen, see, and understand with what he calls the Tao, or the deeper intuitive wisdom of your being. In other words, go for a deeper part of your knowing mind rather than your intellect. Yen Hui retired and spent three years practicing this discipline. After three years, he returned to his teacher and said, Master, I think I am ready. Chuang Tzu said, Well, prove it. So Yen Hui said, Before I practiced mind fasting, I was sure I am Yen Hui. But now, after I have practiced mind fasting, I have come to realize that there never was a Yen Hui. The teacher said, You are ready. Now, that's a lot, but my statement is, my suggestion is, where did you learn who you think you are? You learned it from your parents, you learned it from the school, and you built a structure or a model, which is called an ego structure, in your mind of who you think you are. And then it comes like a mind net around you, so you go down the street and you enter into a conspiracies with each other, saying, I will make believe you are who you think you are if you will make believe I am who I think I am. And we enter into these games to keep reinforcing our models of who we think we are. We dress that way, we look that way, we project it of who we think we are all the time. And we get trapped in it. And it turns out to be too finite. You are shortchanging yourself because you are much more than any model you can have of who you think you are. And finally, when you're ready for that next push, you start to go deeper and you start to become interested in those methods that allow you to escape from the structure your mind has created so that the structure is available as your servant, but not as your master. In the spiritual traditions, they say an intellectual who is proud of his intellect is like a prisoner who's proud of his cell. Now, you may decide I'm a flake. That's perfectly reasonable. I might if I were in your position too. But I would not like to quote from a man who was a vice president of AT&T. Can't resist. <laughs> this is the last page of his book. His name was Robert Greenleaf. He said, awareness behind conscious intellect, I see as infinite and therefore equal in every human being, perhaps in every creature. The blinders which block our conscious access to our own vast awareness are the uncompensated losses we've sustained, the errors we have acquired from our cultural inheritance, from the undigested residues of our own experience, and from our own conscious learning. Remove the blinders from your awareness by losing what must be lost, 
the key to which no one can give you but which your own inward resources rightly cultivated will supply. Then set forth upon your journey, and if you travel far enough, filling the voids of loss with the noblest choices, you may be given the secret of the kingdom, awe and wonder before the majesty and mystery of all creation. The shift in perspective that is required for the next stage of the journey is the realization that everything that you thought you were is only part of who you are. And the desire to cultivate, if you will, the meta-system of which the ego structure is only a subsystem. And the problem is that a subsystem can never understand a meta-system. And that is why in the biblical injunction it says, lest ye die, ye cannot be reborn. In other words, you can't realize your larger system if the smaller system keeps trying to explain it away or control it. That is, the rational, intellectual, analytic mind has gotten you to just where you are now. Now the question is, can you see, it's like you use a boat to cross an ocean, you get to the far shore, do you then have to portage? Do you have to carry it with you? Or can you let it go and now be on another medium in another way? That a journey of going beyond your own, the tool that you have mastered, but now letting the tool go for a moment. The, the trap, of course, has been that you thought you were the tool. Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. The fallacy of that is that it's the reverse way. Behind that is I am and I think. And the thinking mind is your servant, while for most people the thinking mind is their master. And as you cultivate that meta-awareness, that other part of your being, that what's called the intuitive heart-mind, the sin-sin in Chinese, the atma in Hinduism, there's names for it in every system. As you cultivate this meta-system, then you learn how to delight in the forms of the play. You learn how to work in the business world. It doesn't mean you give up the game, it means you give up the vantage point from which you're playing it. So you no longer have to milk it for the success because you're not so busy identifying with your separateness that you need to keep proving again and again that you're adequate, that you're good, that you can accrue more, so that the journey of the separate individual now starts to balance with that part of you that is identified with the totality. So your actions are coming out of a much more interesting place. So that your action is the coming together of a number of strands in your being. Because you and I are human, and what that humanity represents is a creative tension between our animal humanity and our, if you will, awareness or divinity or spiritual consciousness. And it's only keeping both of those in balance, so you keep both of them honored, does the game become interesting. Everything short of that is just, is it your piece of meat or is it mine? And then I go in and lick my paws and I got my cave. And if you go into the next level out, the work begins inside your own head. It does not begin in manipulating the environment. It begins in manipulating the furniture right in here and where the identification is.
There are two little stories of Mahatma Gandhi. One is, he started to lead a march of protest against the British. And after a few days, he saw that it was going to have some bad consequences, and he stopped the march. And his lieutenants came up to him, and he said, Mahatmaji, you can't do this. People left their jobs. They're taking great risk. They're here behind you. You can't stop now. And Gandhi said, I have a mixed understanding. I'm only human. I don't understand it all. My understanding of truth changes from day to day. My commitment is to truth, not to consistency. I'm sorry if that upsets you. A lot of us have built our security on consistency, on being who we thought we were and projecting it outward. Is it possible that you, at your stage of life, can allow for a discontinuity to allow a shift of consciousness into another way of being? Or is your commitment to consistency greater than your commitment to truth? It's an interesting one. And you will notice that the entire circle of the people around you count on consistency. They don't count on truth, they count on consistency. But what you can offer them and yourself finally is a reaching for the truth. That becomes part of your bottom line. And in the course of it, it may not be consistent. The other part of Gandhi that I want to talk about is he was on a train and it was leaving a railway station. And a reporter rushed up to him and said, Mahatmaji, give me a message to take back to the people in the village. The train was already moving. Gandhi took a paper bag and he scribbled something on it and he handed it out. And what it said was, my life is my message. I think that applies to every one of us. What you are offering back into the universe is what you are. What you are, all of it. If you, in the zeal to do well in business, have had to separate means and ends and have not realized that means and ends are a piece, and you use means that are divisive to hu the human condition in order to bring about ends that are good, realize that that is the statement that you are projecting into the world. It's like you try to bring about peace with anger in your heart. What you do is sow the seeds of anger. Look and see at your totality of your life. Ask it of yourself. Is the way I am with all the people around me, is the way I use my resources, is the way I enter into business, is the way I am with my family, is the way I am in relation to silence, aloneness, Am I ready to stand up and be counted as I am and say, this is what I offer to all of you? Or do I say, don't notice me, notice my product? Finally, for each of us, our life is our message. In talking about methods of working on oneself or awakening, or shifting the perspective or shifting the context in which you understand what you're doing and what your life is about, the various strategies, uh, some of them involve the withdrawal into another context in order to change and then coming back. Like when you go on a vacation, you leave one context in order to reintroduce yourself to parts of your being that got lost in the sort of subtle toxicities of daily life. 
you pull back, you get another perspective, then you come back with that enriched. So, for example, what we do when we go on vacation is usually get very busy in doing, which doesn't really deal with the quality of our mind at all, and then we bring the mind back still very agitated and quite speedy. In other cultures, for example, in Burma, where I have studied, the heads of government and business, their vacations, they go into a monastery in order to meditate for two weeks or ten days or a month, in order to quiet their minds, in order to get this shift in perspective so that they can come back and be a more effective game player, if you will, and uh, um, understand the gestalt in which they're functioning more effectively. In that strategy of a cyclic form of life, think about how you use the time that is available to you to, if you will, get beyond time, to find that part of you that is beyond time. That can be done spirally in that way of going out into the world and coming back. Uh, and those going out and come back, the pulling back can be, uh, it could be in terms of a sabbatical, a year, it could be in terms of a month, it could be in terms of a week, it could be in terms of a weekend, it could be in terms of an hour every morning or an hour every night. Because most doers, if you will notice, they are so addicted to stimulation that they go from going to work and then there's stuff to read on their desks and then there are people to see and there are things to think about and spreadsheets to study and problems to deal with and then they come home and in the car back they're listening to the radio and then they get home and they turn on the television to read the, to see the news and then they are dealing with the family and what's come up and everybody in the family in the day and then in the evening there's more stimulation and the minute it slows down for a second let's go out let's see more people let's do more and it's constantly feeding that need for stimulation and there is a, just an interesting experience of just sitting down. I mean, if there's a stage where you get in your life, whether you even want to believe that it's possible, where you move towards what's called voluntary simplicity. And it gets to the point where you are, you are realizing how cluttered your mind is and you would like to get a free of the identification with your thoughts so much that the, the external environment, you start to want it to be simpler and simpler. It's interesting the first time you sit in a totally white room in a simple way and feel fulfilled and don't feel with no books to grab and nothing and feel at peace with yourself. That is a different, once you have tasted that quality of peace that you can allow yourself to just be and it's enough, then you can work with the sensations and the people in the books without that slight anxiety about not having them, which keeps coloring it just a little bit. The coloring, if you watch, even as you're eating, you're planning what you do in the evening. Even as you're at the movie, you're planning what you'll do after the movie. Even as you're doing after the movie, you're planning what you'll do in bed. And, and so it goes, and it just keeps going and going, and you're always, your mind is always planning the next thing out of anxiety that you're going to get caught without something in the sense of not having anything and having to deal with the emptiness. And then you say, well, at least I'll think. And to come behind it is extremely interesting. Now, um, so that could be as much as 20, as little as 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening or something like that, in which you just start to use some technique to quiet yourself down, to examine the way in which you are so trapped in your own thoughts to develop this other quality of awareness and then you go back into your life and then the next time you you come back to it and then you go out. 
The other strategy is to is to take the stuff of daily life and use it in a double way. You use it, one, at the level at it exists, like decision-making, uh, business uh, processes, and the other, you're using it as a vehicle to awaken yourself. And you're using it simultaneously on both levels at once. Let's see if I can give you an example. Um, Presently, uh, this uh, gathering, all of the funds that came in for this gathering are going to the Seva Foundation. And the Seva Foundation is a um, nonprofit that does work in developing countries uh, and uh, with the American Indians and so on. It's a, uh, it's a very interesting and unusual organization, which maybe we can go into later. But at any rate, this we have a rotating chairmanship in our organization and for these past couple of years I've been chairman. Now being chairman of a foundation is um, it's a role and um, but when I uh, go to Nepal which is one of the countries where we do work and where we have a presence we are an NGO, a non-governmental organization that has been legitimized by the king and the queen and so we're we're real over there and um, just like the Red Cross or any of the other organizations so uh, when I go to Nepal I put on my blue blazer and my tie and I am now chairman of a board and in the course of my last term uh, the time I was there last time I was uh, I had an agenda in which I wanted the government to do certain things for us and we in turn are doing certain things for the government now, what the, I had an opportunity to meet the Minister of Health. Now, the Minister of Health, he has an agenda also. Right? He's, after all, a representative of the king. And he sees me, as you can imagine, what somebody sees the chairman of a board of a funding agency from the West when you're a poor country. What it look, what, you, what I look like to him. And we come together. Now, he is the person that can say yes or no to certain things we need to help us with the opportunity to serve, really. And so we come into the room, each with a certain entourage we've got, and we sit down at temple. It's just like, uh, it's like real people, you know. And <laughs> I don't tell them there are no adults present. I mean, I'm not going to scare them. And uh, we sit down, and we meet and face one another, and we do all the bowing and the hellos, and he's the minister of health, and I'm the chairman of the board. We have our roles, and we each have our agendas. Now, at that point, and I am saying, I've been working on my consciousness now for 25 years, but this job, I think I'm not going to get through. This is going to be a hard one, and I'm probably going to burn out on it very quickly, I think. But I'll see if I can work with it. So I am sitting opposite him, and I've got my little reminder things. These are like worry beads. They're just beads that I use to remind myself so I don't get too lost in the drama. And I'm just sitting there looking at him, and suddenly our eyes meet, and I find another being just like me, except he's busy being the minister of health, and I'm busy being the chairman of the board. And we just met for a moment behind our roles 
as two fellow beings. Now, for an Easterner, that's much easier to do for a West than a Westerner because they're trained to do that. I mean, that's part of what their acculturation process is unlike ours. For me, it took me 25 years to realize that I was a being who was being chairman of a board rather than the chairman of the board. For him, he was trained to fulfill a role without getting lost in it. So that when we meet, we meet and suddenly there is this delight and we meet as two beings who are sharing the, the dance, if you will, of forms. And then we go into the game just as a monopoly game with his, with his agenda. But instead of him being his agenda and me being my agenda, we are two beings who are meeting here and playing as two people, minister of health and chairman of the board and dealing with our agendas. And we're dealing with it from a collaborative place in that we both would like to end suffering. And the result is that our dialogue together brings us closer together rather than ending up being divisive where, well, if you won't do this, then I won't do this, instead of separating us. It's just like Russians and Americans or any people where they come together in a dialogue, whether they can meet in what's behind it as well as being in their separateness, can they meet in their unity. And what I experienced was that my journey to Nepal this time, I came out of it of continuous meetings, meeting with the ophthalmic associations and all this stuff, continuous meetings. I came out of it with more energy than I went in. I came out of it lighter than I went in. I came out of it with my heart more open than I went in. I came out of it seeing that us included Nepalese and Westerners and people from the States instead of the people from the States were dealing with them in developing countries. Now, so what I'm learning and every time the, as I was approaching the Minister of Health, I thought, oh my God, you know, it's fine to play this game when you're playing low key, but here I am now. I'm the chairman playing with the Minister of Health. This is big business. And is that going to suck me in to losing my consciousness into it? And what I had to do was just keep reminding myself and keep waking up until I met him and we met behind it and then it started to be play from there on in. And so what I'm learning is how to take the stuff of daily life and convert it. During the break, one of us asked me, how do you keep from burning out? Well, the answer to how do you keep from burning out is the injunction that the Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the sacred texts of the East, enjoins, which says, do not be identified with being the actor. It's one of the key things. In other words, when you drive a car, most of you do, and you are roughly hurtling through space with about 4,000 pounds of steel or something seen like it, you're doing that, making incredibly subtle and complex decisions about centrifugal and centripetal force and rates of deceleration and all that. And all the time, you're usually tuning the radio, thinking about where you're going, watching for police. Who knows what else you might be doing? And all the time, you're doing all that, and you're doing it on what you could call base brain. That is, you're doing it without being somebody who's driving, and yet driving is happening. Well, it is interesting how you can cultivate a place in yourself that is at rest, even as you're full of activity, so that the activity doesn't wipe you out because you aren't doing it. You can take a long trip 
Like people say to me, I'm on a tour now of 60 cities, which means that between now and April 15th, I'll do 32 cities. I'll be in a different city every other night. So I get on the plane every other day. I go to airports. I carry bags. I get off, meet people, get up, give lectures, go to bed, get up, etc. People say, what a demanding schedule. It must exhaust you. You know who'll say that to me? Like a woman who's raising three kids. <laughs> I'll say, are you kidding? I said, I look at your life. What a demanding schedule. It must exhaust you. I said, I don't know, just like you. I get up every morning, I brush my teeth, I get dressed, then I do stuff all day, then at night I take off my clothes and I go to bed. And then I start the next day. That's what you do. But you see, the minute I have a model of travel, something happens, interestingly, people, while I'm traveling. And they get so caught into what they call, you call the dramatic storyline of it, that you wipe out. You wipe out because you milk the drama of your own life, if that isn't too crude an expression. And you learn how to not, like, what a day I've got. Instead of, okay, you do what's immediately on the plate in front of you. If you're here and you got to get there, you get in the car and drive there. And then you're there and the next person comes in and you meet them. And if, if you keep overriding it with the whole storyline of, well, it's 10 o'clock and I've already done four and I've got six more and will I do it and all, you'll wipe out. On the other hand, if you just do the next thing and the next thing and each thing you do fully, constantly pulling your awareness, noticing where your awareness is and bringing it back, you keep coming into a resting space just as you're doing it. And then it's just event after event after event and you end up being at rest and I'm learning how to do this. I don't know how to do it. I know it's doable because I know beings who do it. And I just have to learn how to be in the doing rather than get lost into the doing and lose the being. That's the whole process. And this is just a mechanical technique. There are techniques called the witness, which is cultivating a part of you that notices what's going on. Like most people, when you get agitated or angry or depressed boy am I depressed See? now if you came to me and you said which people do and they, well, I'm so depressed right yep you're really depressed I'm boy am I depressed is every part of you depressed yeah I'm completely depressed is there any party that isn't depressed? No, I'm completely depressed. You're noticing your depression? Yup. Is the noticer depressed? Well, the notice is just noticing. Aha. There's your entry right there. That's that little place. And it starts out with such a subtle little tiny bit of your mind. 99% of your mind is depressed and 1% is noticing. It's like um, clouds in the sky. If you take a frame and frame a cloud a certain way, it looks like you just get a frame of gray. But if you put a little bigger frame on, you see there's a little blue around it and you suddenly say, oh, that's a cloud. It's the same thing you do with your thoughts. See, the thoughts grab you. Like I go into meditation and the meditative technique I use, which is so Mickey Mouse, it's absurd, is I follow the breath. This is a, a southern Buddhist Theravadan meta technique. It's ancient. It's an ancient technique. 
I follow the breath, rising and falling in my abdomen. I, there's a little muscle that goes up and down when you breathe. You can feel it. Now, I start in, and my instruction from my teacher is, follow the breath, follow the rising and the falling, and when it rises, notice that it's rising, and when it follows, notice that it's falling. So I start. Rising, falling. Rising, falling. Rising, falling. And the first thing that my mind says is, this is never going to work. <laughs> see? Now, what happened was, you see, my mind just said, my mind came up with a thought that said, think of me. Psst, psst, this is never going to work. And if you buy into that thought, you say, you're right, this is going to work. Well, thank you very much for the teaching, and you're off. See? If, however, you just agreed that for 20 minutes you'd follow the instruction of the teacher, and he says, every time a thought arises, notice that it has arisen, allow it, and then very gently return your awareness back to the rising and falling. So you say, okay, thought, see you later, and you go back to rising, falling, falling. And then a thought comes in, for this I got a Ph.D., you know, like, <laughs> here I went and got all this training and all this, and I'm, you know, I'm this intelligent person, and I'm following the breath of whom I got. I better not tell anybody. I mean, it's an embarrassing thing. Well, what'd you do all summer? Well, I followed the muscle rising and falling in my abdomen. Don't you have anything more important to do? You see, I mean, it, you can feel where that is in relation to the cultural context. So I notice that as another thought, and then I go back, and then rising, falling, falling. wonder if the 20 minutes is up yet. Notice it, rising, falling, then, I'm hungry, right, my knee hurts. Each one just comes up and it grabs you and says, I'm real, think me, Psst, I'm real, think me. And each time you notice the thought, allow it, and you go back. The one that really sucks you in is rising, falling, rising. My God, I think it's happening. <laughs> that one really gets you. <laughs> that takes you every time, you know. And it, oh, yeah, it's happening, you know. <laughs> I remember going to one of my teachers and I said, Oh, I've just experienced such peace. I am feeling the peace I've always yearned for all my life. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, this is just so wonderful. He listened. He said, That's fine. Now go back and watch your breath. <laughs> And that's called spiritual materialism, when you get caught in the experiences that happen along the way. Now, what a simple exercise like that does, which has no religious overlay of any stuff, it's just a mechanical method, is it's allowing you to see the way in which your thoughts keep capturing you into being identified with them by giving you a focal point around which you can see your thoughts grabbing you and pulling you. And just doing that simple little exercise allows you to see your thoughts grabbing and taking you until pretty soon you begin to see that the thoughts are an ocean of continuous thinking. It's like sitting on the edge of a stream and watching the water go by and leaves come and little fish go by and all kinds of things go and twigs and every now and then something catches your consciousness and your head turns to follow it. And when you're meditating, you just keep it right there and the stuff comes in, exists, and goes by. And what happens just from that little mechanical method is you start to develop a connection to 
the awareness. It's like the sky that's behind the clouds. Instead of just transferring your identity from being one cloud to the next cloud to the next cloud, which what happens is I'm hungry, and then you're focused on the refrigerator. And then as you're eating, you think, I'm missing the game, and then you're focused on the television set. And then you're in the middle of the game, and you, I gotta go to the bathroom, and you're focused on, and your mind is just constantly, you watch from the minute you wake up, like the alarm goes off, or somebody nudges you, or you wake up and you say, I could sleep 10 more minutes. What was I dreaming last night? I've gotta go to the bathroom, that's what I need to do. Oh, it's so warm in bed. Gee, I can smell coffee. What was I dreaming? What was I dreaming now? Boy, do I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> oh, I gotta do the laundry later. Oh, I forgot that appointment. Oh, God. I got three more minutes. And your mind starts. See, and each one is grabbing you. And it goes all day long. It's just all day long. And each one grabs you and you do this and then this. And if you would watch it from any vantage point other than being in it, you'd be absolutely amazed at what's happening. That you're, you're at the mercy of these thoughts that just grab you and invest. And invest you with reality. And only when you even have a context that it's possible to stand behind your own thoughts in just presence. All you are to define who you are is you just awareness. You just is. Question, sir. We did a study, uh, took a year of a hundred people in the, the little plan of ours, and we implemented some of these thoughts and ideas and found that productivity increased quite a bit hmm. for a number of reasons, and maybe this is one. And we found that the Western mind or our mind here was is pretty difficult to maintain that kind of leveled out at a, at a good productive rate. I wonder if you've had some experience about collective groups in the Western arenas uh, going further with it. Well, um, the whole idea of of sharing the journey with other people is extremely useful, extremely strong. Because when somebody, if you're alone in a marketplace where everybody else is like if you look at the sequence we're talking about, some people are on their way up the first round. Some people have plateaued. They see the finite limitness of the game, limits of the game, and they're starting to go for another plane. They're starting the second level up. If they are all surrounded with the people on the first rise, everybody doesn't understand what they're doing. They get no support for it at all. What's ideal is if you're surrounded with people who are at this next level with you, and ideally even some people who finish that one are on another tack even, that can keep doing that. That's what teachers are about and gurus and all that idea of somebody that's gone beyond that and is sort of let, helping you not get caught, mirroring your caughtness back to you. And it's called in Hinduism, the Sanskrit word is satsang, or in Buddhism, Sangha, or in the community or the fellowship in Christianity, it's a group of people that come together to agree to help each other awaken, to help each other awaken. Now, it's very hard when there is no either manual like a holy book or a teacher to help everybody, because otherwise everybody keeps reinforcing the way they're caught. So it's extremely useful to keep having some either 
method or text or person or group that keeps pulling you up. And what I think is when I talked about consistency and truth is that as you start to grow now beyond the stage of success in a worldly sense and start to deepen your understanding of who you are in the broader social context, it may well be that the nature of your friends change, that a lot of your friends who you picked or who picked you that were relevant at one stage of your life, they don't want to change or grow, and you find that you're starting to be a little bored with being with them, and you feel embarrassed by it and discomforted by it. And that's part of the cons inconsistency of growth, that sometimes you start to look around for new kinds of friends to be with in order to help you grow. The nature of a self propelled group like the one you might be talking about is the nature of the contract you enter into with each other. And the first of them are things like truth and the contract to help each other grow. I mean, uh, like our board at SEVA, we are a, a, an, an, very unlike the Red Cross where the board comes together, they may be um, people with that come together to serve on the board and make decisions. We come together in order to work on ourselves in order to be the instrument of service rather than just stand back and do service. So the contract with each other is, I, would you all help me awaken? So that when one of us gets caught, the others are there to help each other. That's quite a contract between you and me. So you examine the nature of what the group is together for. And if the group has some sense of where it's going in terms of what freedom is and what quietness of mind is to increase productivity, increase satisfaction, increase design, having some control and mastery, control over your own life, not just control of the environment, control of your own life, so you free yourself from your own addictions, then what you really need is a contract that allows you to help each other. And that has to be spelled out. And it's risky. It's scary. Because most people don't want truth from each other. They say, I won't wake you, you don't wake me. Questions? Yes. Um, if you're, I know I'm interested in doing some things with some organizations or even going for a period of time somewhere and, and working or studying, doing both, like working yeah. with Silver or something like that, which I don't know is appropriate. How does one find out about? what organizations there are available to work through that you might be able to go to places where there are needs to actually be there with people. You're talking about organizations, opportunities for your own growth? And I'm talking about opportunities, well it would be for my own growth, but it would also be, uh, say like going to some place like India to work with an organization like is it SAVA or with yeah. some of the other organizations yeah. which how do we find out where do you find out which ones are appropriate for you um, that actually isn't as easy a question as all that it would be nice if there were a huge computer network that would allow you to feed in I have this many hours or days or months and I have these skills and these talents and out would come your airplane ticket but, I, like. <laughs> I know we all like it but what we have is quite a hit or miss program. I mean, there are, what you do is you look at what your skills are 
and you lead with your skills because if you're going the vehicle through which you are there is your skill if you're an administrator you've got those skills you are a being that has a certain skill but you don't sell being you sell skill and then you your skill meets another person with their skill and then together you be that's what the process is so like somebody needs help and you're a helper of a certain kind you come together the vehicle is helping but the nature of what the juice is, is you're just meeting as fellow beings behind the helper helped role. See, this whole book is how not to get trapped in being a helper and to help. And, and, um, one of the, uh, I think once you do that, you look around for the professional groups that are, that are connected with your skill and then you explore with them where the opportunities are, like in education, there's a whole, there are books this thick of educational opportunities for teaching in, in developing countries. Uh, nursing, uh, administrative, um, things like that. Unskilled labor though, I mean, third, developing countries have a glut of just that. And when you're busy, like Seva is busy empowering the Nepalese, not sending in Westerners to do the jobs. So we're busy training the police doctors and training ophthalmic assistants and getting the Nepalese to do the work so that when we leave, they are more powerful than when we came in, not impoverished. So we are not a resource for sending people to developing countries. So you've got to hear whether the role you're going to play. See, it's interesting whether your role in relation to other human beings empowers them and frees them or entraps them. And there are ways of doing good for other people that actually diminishes them in your act of doing good. It's a very interesting thing that if you are getting a rush off doing good, if you're getting a sense of righteousness from being a do-gooder, a, do a gooder, you're doing good, the person you do good to has to feel the effect of that. And they feel somewhat... They, it's, it's interesting. In the old days, I was a psychotherapist in a previous life. And so, and I was, I needed to be a therapist. So I was identified with being a, a psychotherapist. The result was that the person in the room had to be the patient. If you can hear that. And my need to be a therapist kept them being the patient. And in fact, now as I look back, the horror is that I actually punished them when they got better because they didn't need me as much and I needed to be needed. I mean, that was my problem. And it's the same thing that if you need to be identified with your role for your own adequacy, what you do is tend to force other people into symbiotic or complementary roles and you don't let them out of them. And then you only meet in the roles. You don't meet in the space behind the role. Now, when I'm with somebody in a role, I may be helping somebody, like I work with AIDS patients, and I may be going in and holding somebody or changing their sheets or whatever I do with somebody. My vehicle is doing the stuff. I'm here. If they wish to come up for air and be here, that's fine. If they want to stay being an AIDS patient that's suffering, that's up to them. I have no right to take away their right to stay in their role. All I can do is create an environment that allows them to come up if they want to. You can't force another person to give up their suffering, but you can create an environment where they can come up for air if they want to.
And that's the same one of playing your role, say, as an administrator with people around you and being impeccable in it and making demands and standards and all of it, and yet not being so entrapped in your role that you force everybody around them to be caught in their roles. But that even as you're fulfilling your roles, you are in them but not of them. And then often you and a secretary or a staff person and all keep meeting in the space behind it. And the relationship keeps feeding both of you, even as you are impeccable at the level of playing the roles out. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship now with God, the roles that each of us plays? I am a Jew, I am a Christian, I am a... And the difficulty with, with those roles that we, we put on, it's a struggle for me. Any, when you say I am, anything that follows that is a limiting condition, right? The only truth, the closest to truth, that since all words are lies, the closest to truth you can get, just the statement I am. The minute you put a limiting condition on it, you define out what you aren't, right? right? You immediately make an us and them or a, you know, me and that, all right? So... By my saying I'm a Jew makes me not all the rest of it. And then I say, but I was born a Jew. What does that mean? And then I can be cute. I can say, well, I'm only a Jew on my parents' side. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and I hear that from my point of view, what I'm trying to do is to learn the lessons of this birth. I'm trying to learn that everything that is on my plate has been given to me as a curriculum through which I can become free. That's the way I see the universe. I'm giving you the advanced course right now, but that's roughly it. So that everything, including the fact that my my father was this, my mother died this way, that I'm bald, that I this, that, that, all my whole, all my neuroses, they are all part of this curriculum that is offered to me that I can use through which I can awaken. Now, sometimes role identities, if you push away a role identity prematurely, it still has you. For example, in the early days, I just wanted to get high all the time. I wanted to go and be in la-la land. I wanted to be in the one, the hell with all these individual differences. I didn't like who I was in individual difference land, so I wanted to be out there. I kept trying to get high all the time. And then I saw that that was a trap. I was pushing away something, and as long as you try to push something away, it's got you. It's like your hand sticks to it. See, and the secret of, the, of all the transmissions are attachments or aversions, both of them catch you. I mean, one of the highest teachings is the third Chinese patriarch of Zen that starts out with a line that you immediately, I only get to, get to give you one line for you to say, oh, not, not ready for that yet. It says, the great way is not difficult, meaning the great way, the true understanding, the deepest freedom. The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When you've got that one, let me know and I'll give you the next line. It says, when love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised, but make the slightest distinction and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. And what you hear is that as long as you identify with anything, this versus that, as long as you push away your humanity to hold on to your divinity, as long as you grab your humanity and push away your divinity, it's got you. You don't see the truth of things.
They say in the, in the mystic literature, truth waits for eyes unclouded by longing. As long as you want anything, you only see the outward container. As long as you identify with any thing or group, you've got an agenda. You're trying to protect it. If you say, I am a Christian, you're busy trying to protect that definition. You say, I am, I was raised a Christian, and Jesus has got one of the most brilliant teachings of just what we're talking about today. I mean, what a mind-blowing teaching. He comes and he says, look, I'm taking a human birth just like you, and I'm just going to show you the truth of the fact that you aren't who you think you are. Watch. I'll go and I'll just be like you, and then people will scorn me. Now, that would freak you because you'd say, one, you know, loss, shame is terrible. They'll shame me and I'll still be here. You think, you say, well, shame's one thing, but your body is your big deal. Go ahead, I'll be crucified, and I'll drop back in three days and show you that isn't it either. Can you imagine a statement? I'm offering my life to show you you aren't who you think you are, so you can be free if you believe that I just did what I did. What a statement. Now, you can appreciate that statement of the Christ consciousness coming down in a form and giving that teaching, but I can also appreciate... Buddha, who started out as a rich boy and then saw through the fallacies of stuff, and he saw there was suffering and sickness and death, and that as long as he tried to hide from it or push it away, it had him, and he went out and he had commerce with it, and he kept working on himself, and he saw through the whole game and sat down and came back and taught these clear truths about how the nature of suffering and humanity, and I can love him, and I can look again and again to Moses and what happened up on the mountain, and in each tradition, I see the truth. Because every religion was rooted in somebody that had a direct experience of who we are. And then different strokes for different folks. They came down and they, for a different time, they formulated it in a different way. And then people kill each other for my way is better than your way. And it's interesting to, to understand the universality of the deepest truth and yet honor your form. I mean, I think my guru, who was a Hindu guru, used to say to most Westerners, Christ is your guru. Christ is alive and well in your heart if you will allow him to be and he'll guide you. And I think that's true. Now, and I listen in each religion to find that form that allows me to touch that deepest truth. It turns out that in Western religions, most of the exoteric component of the religion is not designed to awaken you. It's designed to keep you from causing too much trouble to yourself and to everybody else. And when you start to awaken, then you go into the esoteric components like Gnostic Christianity or the Kabbalah in Judaism or, you know, the Vedic teachings in Hinduism and stuff like that. Questions? Last time I heard you, you, you this time you talked about viewing yourself and then the last time you mentioned that there was a viewer, a second viewer of the viewer. The developing of the witness that notices your game movements, your life movements, is still, it's one part of your mind noticing another part of your mind. That's only halfway home. If you're going to go the full journey, then ultimately, then this is a very tricky discipline to do it. Your mind turns in and observes itself observing. Because the observing self is just another part of the mind. 
And then at that point, if your mind is disciplined enough to do that, you go through a doorway and then you come into the space where you are no longer in your thinking mind. You are behind your thinking mind and you just, that's the thing that uh, Greenspan was talking about, about saying um, awareness is uh, below conscious intellect, is infinite and equal in every human being, perhaps in every creature. That's the one. And that's the one where you are no longer witnessing yourself. There's no more self-consciousness. You just are the thing itself. You just are the act. You, you are the washing the dish. You are the driving of the car. You're not thinking, I am driving the car. You just are it. And it gets very simple and very immediate. Then you're like a tree or the grass or the river. You're part of the universe of forms. As Gandhi said, when you die into that completely, then you find yourself in the service of all that exists. It's just natural. It's your recreation and your joy. Rabindranath Tagore, the poet, said, I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I awoke and saw that life was service. I acted and behold, service was joy. See, there are stages of this recognition until not that you're doing good anymore. Next level is you are good. Not that you are milking for your self-image how good you are. You're doing it because if your hand is sitting in the fire, your other hand will pull it out. And this hand doesn't say to this one, this one doesn't say to this one, thank you, because they're both part of the same thing. I've had this, I've been struggling with in my lectures, I'm trying to deal with this issue of looking uh, the description I describe is that I was on a beach in Marin and I was playing Frisbee, which is a frivolous game, right? Frivolous Frisbee. Sunlight, it was a beautiful day, and I was playing Frisbee. And as I was about to throw the Frisbee, into my mind came the inscription that is over Gandhi's tomb. And it says, think of the poorest person you have ever seen and ask whether your next act will be of any use. <laughs> do you throw the frisbee or don't you see what you and I do most of the time is we have little category compartments in our head well I've done good now I can play golf and when I'm playing golf I don't really want to think about those starving people because they'll ruin my golf afternoon but now you call me and you say they're a blind in Nepal I'd like to help and then you get a good feeling about yourself. And then after three pounds of good feeling, you can have, a, you know, two ounces of pleasure. And you got these, these, we have these very subtle ways of playing, of compartmentalizing our life. But I'll tell you, there is another level to play the game from. Because if you think that your happiness can be had through denial of something else, you've got to realize that part of your energy is involved in that denial process. And you're not, it's not free energy. And there is another level where you have gone out and you have what's called embraced it all into yourself. And there is the poverty and the suffering and the joy and the pleasure. And there you experience your own unique role in being part of an incredibly affluent society that has tremendous resources to work with. And instead of turning away to grab that and then going back and then turning away to grab that, 
you embrace it all and then you do what you do and you hear that your acts can't be done by a rule book and sometimes it involves playing frisbee and sometimes it involves service but no longer are you denying you're allowing you're allowing and appreciating because you're hearing the unique part you have to play in the total structure of the dance of the game of life and you're just playing your part the way an oak tree does or an elm tree does to make believe you're not part of an affluent culture is dishonest but to make believe there aren't developing countries where there are people at this moment starving and blind is also dishonest And finally, you have what they describe in a smile on a Buddhist statue, the smile of unbearable compassion. You bear what's unbearable. There is so much suffering, and it's all us. You go up in your consciousness, you see we're all us, and then you come down and you say, but it's my television set. Or in, in Islam, they say, trust in Allah, but tie your camel. <laughs> <laughs> And you learn that you have to be impeccable on every plane. That you can't be clean out here with the one and sloppy down here. Like oh, from a long time, I was helping my audiences get out there. And then I saw, I looked and there were a lot of audiences out there in La La Land. And my teachings were learn your zip code, get your act together, get a job. You know, grounding people. And you find half the audience, you're trying to say, go, fly, dance, play. And the other part, you say, come on down, get it together. Because finally, we have to have it all. If we're going to honor our humanity fully, we've got to honor our divinity, our humanity. We've got to honor that we are part of the one and live it. And we are also separate. That we have fears and pain and grief out of our separateness. And we also have absolutely safety and invulnerability out of our oneness. And you keep learning that and learning it. And you study books that help you understand that. You listen to tapes. You come to gatherings like this. You examine. You explore your own silence. You start to quiet your mind. You start to look to cultivate what is that quality of softness that allows me to be part of the universe rather than separate from it. This all becomes part of your agenda and finally part of your bottom line. One more. One more. In, in your five years since some of us in here have seen you before, are you finding there any change in our culture, it's business culture primarily? Uh, are, are businesses, business people um, more open to looking and searching and, and, and maybe questioning the values that we've had and the roles that we've been in? There are some very interesting um, effects of the... Um, the immediacy of information in the culture, the information facility that technology has given us has changed us in some ways. For example, the immediacy of appreciating the, the what's called the global village or the fact of everybody's presence and the immediacy of suffering. The, um, I'll tell you, I'll list the things. The bomb, which means the presence of the potential of, of not living. So you got to live with death presently, immediately. Uh, communication, which has changed the, our natures of time and space because of the immediacy of everything. Transportation, mobility, which has changed the nature of space and time also. 
Uh, things like terrorism, which has increased the anxiety that comes with an anarchic system. The economic instability of debts and debt structure and the fact that the culture, the business community particularly, is playing paper games with money further and further out so that there is less stability, less rootedness in the way the game is being played now. All of these overdetermines changes in consciousness of the culture. They all contribute to changing the name of the game. So that, for example, what Einstein did to physics, to Newton, See, what Newton, when I grew up, I took Newtonian physics in school, and I was told that Newtonian physics was absolutely true. I mean, I remember, it was only, it seemed like a few years ago, and then Einstein came along and he said, well, it's relatively true depending on where you're standing. Now, Einsteinian physics is taught, and everybody assumes that, and it changed the whole game. It took what I was taught was as absolute reality, and it made it relative reality didn't make Newton a liar, it just made him relatively true rather than absolutely true. Well, all this stuff is doing the same thing to the, the cultural stand you're having anywhere, that the information uh, facility is making your reality relatively real but not absolutely real because you're having all these other realities presented to you. You're not growing up in a village in Iowa where you don't know anything but what's going on in Iowa like just one generation back was doing. You're knowing too much all the time. I mean, a kid in Iowa, by the time he's 12 years old, has vicariously through television lived out hundreds and hundreds of roles. That's a whole different world of view than the kid that grew up in Iowa two generations back where he dreamed of becoming the postmaster in the post office. I look at my audiences now 20 years ago, my audiences all looked a certain way. They had all either come to me through drugs or through Eastern mysticism and philosophy. My audiences now, and I'm saying the same thing roughly that I was saying 25 years ago. I'm sorry, but it's, nothing changes. It's the perennial philosophy. My audiences are now, first of all, my audiences in those days were a narrow age range of about 10 years, between about 15 and 25. My audiences now are between about 20 and 80. Over 75% of them have never taken marijuana or any drugs or any Eastern philosophy. Who are they? What are, what are they doing there? Why would they come here a flake named Ramdas? I mean, what is it? I don't understand. I only have can assume that there is a shift in the cultural context that has to do partly with the anxiety of the times and partly of the receptivity to these kinds of ideas. Maybe the culture is ready at this moment. Maybe that's what affluence finally does. People burn out how much they think they're going to get happiness through what they can buy and acquire. Either they do it directly or they do it vicariously because they look at the faces of the hero figures and they don't see happiness and contentment. Frank Sinatra is not a content man. I don't know that he's a hero figure either, but he's, he was, or he is partly. But that's the problem, that we are seeing the limits of our own culture as, as a certain mythic culture. And that limit that is becoming visible through our hero figures writ large on television, so it's Dallas and Dynasty and that kind of unhappy 
meanness and sadness and greed and fear that's involved in those kinds of shows, and those are our big images, that makes us ripe for the next step of a journey, there has to be some despair. There has to be a realizing of the limits of one level before you will ask the next questions, because it's threatening to even allow that there is a meta system when you're still trying to milk the initial system. Okay. Thank you very much for sharing this time. This has been a, what comes out of me is so much a function of who's there. And I want to honor the willingness everybody has to coming together and sharing because the sharpness of your minds brings out stuff in me that um, a different audience wouldn't bring out at all. So thank you. All right, we're back. After that incredible historical lecture from Ram Dass, again from 1987, Los Angeles, California. He covered a lot of topics. He went in a lot of different directions, starting out addressing this L.A. crowd about how to keep consciousness in the business world, because this is something we talk about a lot and honestly something that Ram Dass doesn't always address. That's why I picked this lecture so unique how are we successful in a material sense monetarily and maintain consciousness and he talked about a lot of those strategies and we talk about manifestation so much on this show we talk about being spiritual and successful that part of a leadership role at this time in human development is looking at the third dimensional situation, the games, the businesses, the roles, and figuring out how to engage with it in such a way that we can create these resources, that we can advance these things in a material sense. We should be, if we're of able body and able mind, as successful as we can possibly be. And again, success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. Even Ram Dass talked about how money should be the byproduct of your goal. He talked about that at the beginning. Money can never be the goal, but if the money starts happening, then start using it in a way to further the mission, the heaven on earth mission. And that's really, truly the goal. The goal of humanity is to manifest a heaven on earth style scenario. And then on top of that, our individual goals, our smaller goals are always rooted in that bigger goal. And that's how we get there. And, and if you have these resources to live an opulent life, that's okay because you're serving, you're serving and you're just generating more. It's just infinite. Bryn, what did you think about that? That was an incredible conversation. Yeah, it was. He covered a lot of, a lot of ground there. Um, but yeah, back at the beginning of the lecture, that was the first thing I noticed, which is I believe one of those universal truths because all of the teachers that I study and I know you study all say the same thing that it's about, you know, you're here for your service and your whatever the byproduct of that service is, if that's, you know, a monetary gain, 
that's the byproduct. And as soon as it becomes the goal, then that's where you lose. That's where greed comes in. That's where forgetting that the us and them, I liked how he broke that all down about that. That's where that all comes into play because you forget that you're doing it for the you, the, the, the they that is you, that you're all that one thing. And if you lose sight of that, um, that's when you become the, you know, the competitive and the I need this and this is my stuff and all of that verse. We're doing this creative play. And I, I liked how he talked about, um, you know, being the chairman of the board and the, the minister or whatever, how they had that moment of looking at each other of saying like, okay, we're going to sit down and play the game. And remember that you're coming to the monopoly table, that you aren't the little silver hat and the game, like that you're moving the pieces. And if you and the, those who you're playing with, even within your family, remember that you know, you're sitting down to play this game in these roles together in order to provide your divine service. It's going to be a whole different thing than the attachment to that role or the gain that you get from that role in a material sense. Definitely. And two points that I felt that could kind of coincide with each other or correspond with each other. He said, my life is my message that it's a concept that you should kind of focus on that you want to make your life your message but really you want to make your life like a prayer right you're like your life is your message but it's also this incredible message to the divine a loving message and then the other point was the concept of being in the world but not of this world so you're always in that light being consciousness you're always in that greater above the I am, like he said, as soon as you say I am whatever, then you become that thing. So you're in this dimension on earth, you're in this world, but you know your true self is coming from this other place. So if you can coalesce and merge those two concepts, you can be in this world, but not of it. Make your life this message, this prayer, and bring all that to this success goal-oriented mindset. All of these spiritual teachers are telling you to be successful. Utilize your talents. Discover your talents. If you haven't discovered them yet, and you definitely have talents, discover your talents. Utilize your talents. Express your service. Like Express yourself through your service. Make that an incredible energy generator for you in your life, whether there's monetary energy or whatever you're gaining from that, that you're then putting back out. That's your thing. And that's the true success. They're all telling you this, all of this. So there's so many schools of thought that say live simply. So others may simply live there. There is something to that per se, like don't be wasteful, but then that cuts out the concept of the infinite and just what you can do when you tap in to the true abundance consciousness, that true concept that everything is infinite. Brian, what, what would you like to add to the situation? I know you wrote down a lot of notes there. I always write down a lot of notes. Sometimes I'm like, <laughs> oh, am I writing down everything he's saying? <laughs> so, but you know, there's just, it helps it, helps it stick a little bit more. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 would say that's all true. And it's not about, I think it's the getting hooked into the material, like all the, the 20 million is different than the 80 million. Oh man, I wish I had the $80 million boat, not the $20 million, but you completely lose sight when you're 
stuck on the thing and and that let that gratification and that addiction really of the the feeding and it, it then then I think that's where we get into like oh god look at that excess look at that waste look at that opulence because it's about you're seeing that lower frequency of just manifesting the thing and wanting the next for content, thing for status for status and for that now I am that 80 million whatever maker but if it's about like I'm providing this service the world is becoming a better place I am cherishing my role as you know this and I'm furthering the mission to heaven on earth then whatever comes in the flow of that cycle is a completely different thing and it's it's open-ended it's not it there is no mean to the end you're not doing this thing for the house or the boat or the whatever it, it's not about that at all and usually I, I mean because he does talk about living simply you don't like the house is full of stuff or whatever that it's not that you I don't know it, it's tricky because I think you can live simply in a lot of different ways it's about your attachment to it or needing to hold on to that for your label or your role and there's That's an the attachment difference. to not being attached in a way if you get too hung up in it right right right. like he said too that what was he calling it the uh, i can't remember what he said it was like the uh, something that you know something about a spiritual ego like i've gotten the thing i did it now i'm you know i'm better than you because i'm not attached <laughs> to the attachment or you know you have to it's such a spiritual merit badge as you could say yeah it's it's like it's a careful dance no matter what because you're just you're just trying to breathe in and breathe out and <laughs> not get, not, you know, like, like you were saying, I love that little part that uh, humor is always the best. Cause it really, it makes it so much more real. You know, when he's walking through the like, okay, here's the 20 minutes of meditation. Oh, I got to go to the bathroom. Oh, I got to eat. I got It's so real. Cause that's exactly what happens. And that's, it's all about just the process of it. I see. Well, that was an incredible lecture. I'm glad we got to listen to that. And if you have never heard of Ram Dass before, I, I think you have. But if you haven't, you can always check out his books that are out there. They're all valuable in their own way, of course, on Amazon. And they're, they're everywhere you can buy a book. Be Here Now, the classic where he meets his guru. Be Love Now, Paths to God. I've read this book. Christopher the Mill, Still Here polishing the mirror and miracle of love is even still out there even though it's out of print you can still find copies i highly recommend that one and just check out what ram Dass is all about his podcast has previous episodes the here and now podcast you can find that on any platform and of course i have to shout out since bryn is here giving her time i have to shout out Vital Force Herbs, go there and check her out. And of course, please check out Blue Cobra CBD, highest quality CBD oil out there, all organic, bluecobracbd.com. And everyone, I hope you gained from this lecture. If you notice, he seemed to touch on some of the things that we've been talking about recently in previous episodes. Definitely. Very timely. Um. I just always love to notice in these older lectures that you dig up how 
I mean, whether it's like Manly P. Hall from 1940 or here's 1987, they're like, do you see how everyone's living at such a fast pace? And like he was talking, he was, this is 1987. This is pre-internet. And he's like, oh, look what's happening with this fast pace. And that's you just feel like you could have this. Yes. And that's the, yeah, that, uh, that perspective and the relative versus the absolute. It's really interesting, um, to see where we are now and how fast everything is like, we feel like that was a snail time perhaps um, compared to now, whereas he felt like that was so sped up. So that's all interesting to think about every time we listen to these lectures. It makes me ponder that a bit. Very interesting. Well, everyone we will see you next week. Midnight on earth.